You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. This episode is presented by the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw people have a rich history and a bright future. At the Choctaw Cultural Center, you can take part in a story 14,000 years in the making. Stroll through our immersive exhibits portraying Choctaw life from the moment our ancestors emerged from the Nani Wayhai in Mississippian homelands to the Trail of Tears, where we lost so many loved ones, and finally to the modern-day tribe making a positive impact on local communities throughout southeastern Oklahoma. Try your hand at our social dancing and stickball and learn more about our vibrant culture through demonstrations, workshops, and classes. The kids will have a blast in our Luxie Activity Center. The Choctaw Cultural Center is more than a museum. It's a living, breathing experience. Visit ChoctawCulturalCenter.com to plan your visit. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike and here, host, back with another episode up in Guthrie, America today. Um, Hedy Coleman's going to be thrilled that I've come to Guthrie to do another podcast, but I didn't <laughs> tell him I was coming. So you'll have to listen to this to find out I was in town. But my guest today is another Oklahoma transplant which is always fun to have. Uh, Flora Knight's on the podcast. Uh, Flora, you are a fiddle player and you make boots. This is correct, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you're from New Zealand. Yes, but not born in New Zealand, technically. Okay. So. so, well, I mean, people think of New Zealand, they think of Lord of the Rings, sheep, mountains. Yep. I think of a dominating rugby rugby team that's <laughs> dominated Welsh rugby for a long time. Yeah, those um, are all appropriate associations. Yeah, I actually... I didn't, I took my dad and my brother and my wife in November to see Wales against New Zealand last November. Cool. Uh, great tickets. We went to watch New Zealand. Where was it? It was in Wales. So we went wow. home. It was while we were home. Yeah, it just happened to be while we were home. I'm like, we're going. Um, so I got to see, you know, the Haka real live. And my cool. wife, obviously growing up here, she's not uh, not used to seeing that stuff. So mm. she was thrilled to see it live. And yeah. That was an experience. But yeah, I haven't been to New Zealand yet. So it's on the list. Yep. Well, you you got to. It's a beautiful place. And yeah. They'll uh, enjoy having you there, I'm sure. I <laughs> thankfully I have a friend that's there, so I've already got an excuse. I got an excuse to go to go yep. see them. But so you just mentioned you didn't grow up in New Zealand, then. So start there. Where'd you, where you where were you born? Sorry. 
Yeah, well, I did grow up in New Zealand. I moved to New Zealand when I was six with my whole family. Um, And yeah, but I was born in Canada and Ontario. And so my dad got a job at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And we just all moved over there. I think we were only meant to stay a couple of years, but um, then we were just settling in. And I guess they decided it was a nice place to raise the kids. And we ended up staying there. Canada to New Zealand's quite a trek. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And we never sort of, um, I, yeah, I don't remember us considering moving back there or anything. Mm-hmm. We just kind of ended up in New Zealand and we were just there. Yeah. So you, how many How many of the family moved? How many of you? I have two out? brothers, my okay. mom and dad and my, me and my two brothers. Okay. Yeah. Are they still there? Uh, yeah, my older brother is in London, but the rest of them are still in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember anything from growing up in Canada? Yeah, I remember bits and pieces. I remember the lakes and, um, my grandparents had, yeah, I I remember a fair bit. Um, six, I guess is enough of an age to have some memories. And, and I've been back there quite a bit in my early twenties. I went back to Ontario and was working on some farms kind of in the area where I was born and, um, living with my grandma in Toronto and things. So I got to kind of reinforce my memories of the place and connection to the place. So, yeah. So obviously going to New Zealand from Canada is quite a culture shock but at six it's kind of like the perfect age because you don't really you're like oh this is just new to me like it's not like <laughs> yeah. going it's not like you're going at 14 and you have all these friends and yeah like you know you're like i have to now you know it's totally assimilate somehow yeah. yeah i don't really remember knowing what was going on at all i don't yeah. <laughs> i don't think that was intentional or anything but i, I think it, i just didn't have much of a concept of, of um what immigrating across right. the world was like. So I probably took to it all right. Although I do remember I was very tomboyish and I had a bowl cut and I remember going to school in New Zealand for the first day and like choosing a pretty dress to wear and the kids <laughs> being like, why is this weird American boy wearing a dress? <laughs> like, you know, all the, you know, all the traumas of going to a new sure. place and being the odd one out or whatever, but it worked out. We figured it out. Yeah. So, I mean, What's it like growing up in New Zealand? Like, what's that? I mean, is it much different to, you know, what you probably could have grown up in Ontario? I mean, well, yeah, I can't imagine what that was like. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, um, landscape-wise, it would have been quite different, you know, but, like, just a sort of uh, a Western country, yeah. like, with, um, you know, all the all the things that another Western country would have, all the privileges of growing up in that place has makes available to you. But um, certainly the landscape was very different. We grew up on the south coast of New Zealand, so just big, wavy, cold, salty beaches and yeah. and mountains and things like that. Whereas um, would have been a bit of a different environment in Canada. But yeah, yeah I think I think for the most part it probably. No way of knowing, really. <laughs> right, but I mean, it turned out great, so it's fine. It yeah, out okay. yeah. It's a, it's a New Zealand is a really lovely, quaint kind of place. Yeah. It's, it is. You do get the sense that it's a bit isolated from the mm-hmm. rest of the world. I mean, these days we're all kind of quite global and connected, yeah. but a big part of growing up in New Zealand for anyone who did, not necessarily me coming from Canada, is that the the whole world is kind of out there yeah. it's um and so quite often when you leave school 
it'll be a given that you either kind of go to university or you take some years off to go and travel and experience the world yeah. and things like that. And a lot of New Zealanders grow up and do that because the the sense that we're just this little island in the mm-hmm. middle of the Pacific and that there's a lot more out there. So. Yeah. Whereas, I don't know, if you're in a huge place where there's so much around you, like America or whatever, Mm. there's so much to do just right in your own backyard. Yeah, spoiled here. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Just jump in the car and go wherever you want. Oh, yeah. It's just endless to explore here in America. So you mentioned Dad got a job. That's kind of why you moved. Mm -hmm. Um, Dad, university, worked as a professor? Yeah, he he was, is a um, hydrographic surveyor, so deals with ocean stuff. (laughs) Um, And so so he was doing his PhD at the University of Otago, and um, he since has set up his own company and does freelance surveying work and stuff. So, um, Yeah. yeah. So growing up then, like, were parents kind of big on education, music, culture? Like, how, how do you kind of develop the, the passions and the skills that you do when you look back and as a kid you think, oh, now I see why, because mom and dad pushed me to play the piano or do all these things, and, you know, is, is that kind of how it was? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, my family, my immediate family and my extended family are all... Um, kind of artistic and educated people and things so I I guess there was a kind of um, a push in that direction uh, a lot of my extended family are professional classical musicians so there is obviously um, an interest and um, they put a value on music and learning music and the arts and stuff my my grandmother was an actress and a, a theater teacher and um, and uncles a professional violinist violist and things like that so there's music and arts and things uh were very much a part of the family and so I guess when I was about seven they asked me what uh what instrument I wanted to learn and I chose the violin and um got going on some Suzuki violin method but I absolutely as any kind of kid would I guess like just totally detested it I mean I did and I didn't but once it got to a point where I had to really like practice all the time and you know be a little bit more dedicated and not just be like a kid running around I I kind of loathed it but I'm grateful that they uh they made me right kind of continue and things like that and and my dad is like a kind of a folk musician, country rock and roll sort of guitar player and singer and things. Mm-hmm. So he was getting me interested in folk and country and that kind of thing. And um, again, I wasn't really didn't much didn't didn't have much context for yeah. how to enjoy that kind of thing until I was a little bit older. And then I, uh, yeah, had already knew kind of how to get around the fiddle a little bit and. Um, but yeah, I, I just am very lucky to have grown up in a family that put put a lot of value on um, on this kind of thing. Yeah, well, looking back, it's obviously of no surprise now that you play, and you know, mm-hmm. like, it's a big part of your life. But yeah. back then, like you said, it's just, oh, do I have to do this now? Yeah, you know, it's like it's great to play and run around, like you said. But then when mom and dad saying, "Hey, you have practice," like <laughs> you're, you you might be performing next week, you oh know, whatever goodness. it is. I like, know my my dad used to say he'd. He said, Flo, I'll, I'll pay you a dollar an hour 
to practice the violin. Yeah. I'd be like, no, you know. He'd say, I'll, play, I'll pay you $5 an hour to practice folk music. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know. And then I eventually came around to it. I was like, all right, I'll take yeah. that deal. And he was like, nope, nope, no. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> That's awesome. So growing up then, like that way, and, and just having, being music, a huge part of family, um, what was kind of like just the, the childhood dream of, you know, of, of, of you at that point like do you think the world's out there I'm, I'm gonna you know go travel the world and play music or do you you have your eyes set on something else um I I don't know I don't know if I ever had the dream big enough to like be a professional musician and and things like um but I knew it was this uh I placed a lot of importance on it because I knew it, it um was a tool that I had in my life that um, was able to create relationships that were quite meaningful, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, do, I just kind of followed my nose through that, you know. I'd meet other musicians and things that I love to play music with and connect with on that level. And it was just music, no matter where you go, is an easy way to um, make a connection mm-hmm. and, and learn and so uh, I don't know. I think I've always kind of followed my nose. When I was little, I just I wanted to be an actress because I was doing lots of plays and like doing theater and stuff from a young age. And my grandma did that, and I always looked up to her. And my extended family would put on big um, uh, plays and things like that, and I'd always be involved in that. So I kind of uh, thought that might be a thing, but. Just, I, th- I think I've always just kind of sure. impulsively followed my nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no real plan. <laughs> I, that, that's how I am. It drives my wife nuts. Yeah. But that's how I am. It right? does just, drive a partner nuts. You just kind of nuts. float yes. through life, right? Like, you know, what are you going to do tomorrow? Well, I, I think I have, I don't know, let me check my calendar. Like, it doesn't matter, right? Like Exactly. You, know, you never know what could come exactly. up. Exactly. Uh, and it's it's kind of annoying sometimes when you ask, someone asks you to do something when you have something already planned. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I'm an annoying friend to have, but, um, we, we do our best. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you, does there come a point then when you're like, you know, in high school and you're thinking like, you know, I'm sure because family's academic and, and just what you just said in the last kind of, you know, bit is like, well, they, they must've been pushing you to go to education and get an education and go to school. Uh, yes and no. Um, I actually quit high school yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why really. I think I was just like bored or something or just curious about what else was out there. And I, I quit my fourth year into school in New Zealand. We do five. So it was in grade 12. And, um, I don't think they were stoked about that, but they also kind of just allowed me to do what I want to, which was a little bit crazy, but, um, then I, that year I, I, I went over to Canada and stayed with my grandma and things for a while and did a bunch of stuff and just, I guess was a bit of a bum and then got, got, um, kind of bored of it and went back to school for the fifth year and I was yeah. able to make up all the credits and things like that and, um, go on and get university entrance to go to university if I wanted sure. to and things, but, um, yeah, I I, don't, I can't really remember them pushing me in one direction or another, but I I was always very supported in my mm-hmm. crazy ideas, you know, and endeavors in that way. Yeah, kind of a bit of a soul searching time moving back to Canada and just kind of stay with your grandma. I'd and say like, so. Hey, yeah, let's go see what you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, I just, uh, I guess I just didn't like being in a classroom and doing homework yeah. and stuff like that. And but. Well, and at, the, at grade 12, you're, well, 18, 19 years mm-hmm. old. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're, I know in this country, sometimes you're not an adult if you're not over 21. But yeah. in, 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 you know, the UK and New Zealand, you're pretty much an adult. Yeah. You can do what you want. Yeah, so. and I was already, I guess, like playing music in bars and stuff and um, traveling around and busking and things like that. So I guess I just got a sense of like wanting to adventure yeah. and not be in school and whatever. But, you know, when, that, when you're that age and then you go out into the world and you realize you have to kind of like work a job, <laughs> kind of bumming around at schools, right. probably a better alternative. <laughs> so I went back and did that and ate my hat and yeah. <laughs> got back in the, in the school system. Is the is the music scene in Canada similar to New Zealand for that one year, or was it you kind of just just you you still doing the same stuff? You just moved to a different country. Yeah, same sort of stuff. There, yeah. I was really into um, getting into the folk music. I was at that age pretty into Scottish fiddle music. Okay. So um, I remember going to Canada. Scottish fiddle in bluegrass and old time kind of in the American music, but. I remember being curious about the, um, the the settlers in Nova Scotia and their kind of unique brand of Scottish music, the Cape Breton fiddle yeah. music and things. So I remember taking some lessons from a Cape Breton style fiddle player in Toronto and things like that when I was there. And I don't know, I think if you're curious about music and you go to a place and you go, what's there? And you just get to explore the, the scene and meet interesting people that way yeah yeah as far as like i mean obviously we're you know we're here because you're you know learning and and building your business on the boot side of things Mm. and making boots and along your childhood were you always kind of a maker and a fixer or does that come later um yeah probably came a bit later my my mother definitely is the influence there she uh was just a very talented maker of anything and fixer of things and and stuff and so she taught me how to sew so I was um yeah probably my late teens and early 20s I started making dresses and clothing and um and so that 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 came from her for sure and I I I think at the time I got into making shoes it was because I was thinking about um well making outfits and then just getting curious about things. But also um, I was starting to work on a farm and grow food. So I was in this place where I was just curious about where everything came from and how everything was done. And also we're, you know, living in this world now where we just have crappy stuff that we just buy cheaply and throw away and things. And I just think that I liked good quality things and, kind of just old-timey stuff yeah well it's <laughs> you know old, it's like old-timey. the fiddle yeah. tunes and things like that it's and the like getting into the the old-time fiddle world and things like that 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 world is filled with people who romanticize a time where their music came from and things yeah. so they're into like growing food and canning food and making stuff from scratch making instruments making whatever and mm-hmm. stuff so i guess it 
learning to make shoes was just some good old time cred. <laughs> you fully subscribed to that way of life and you just wanted a little more of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the author, just, you go in, you, if you wonder where things came from, then you get to be thinking about the way people lived back there and like why the music existed in this context and things. Old time fiddle music is really just a, um, a dance music, you know? And and then in a time where we didn't have stereos and things like that, you'd have a little square dance band and they'd be playing at the local thing. And yeah. it's a, um, yeah, you just get into the communal aspect of right. it and just. You go back to, uni, you know, go back to school, finish up, get uni credits, go to uni in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you, what are you studying? You're studying music? I did. I did. I only went to university for one year. I did uh-huh. the whole thing again where I was like, man, I don't think I want to be in the university. <laughs> but I, um, I went to university and then the town that I lived, you could do a contemporary music course. Mm-hmm. And so I signed up for that. But the contemporary music course was really set up for um, uh, bass, guitars, drums, piano, vocals. And obviously being... A violin player that didn't fit into that, but I asked them if I could take violin lessons from the classical teacher and and do the course through the um, the contemporary course. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was a pretty interesting experience. I got paired up with this kind of like metal band and was playing <laughs> some kind of metal fiddle lines <laughs> and things like that, and it, it wasn't particularly my thing, but you know, yeah. an experience like any else. And I just kind of diddled around and did some arts papers and things like that. But I got, um, at the end of my first year of uni, there was a band in New Zealand, a string band that, um, traveled and played full time and, um, they needed a fiddle player. So they asked me if I wanted to join and play full time. So I was like, join a band full time. Heck yeah. It's the dream right now. Let's go. Yeah. I think I was 18 18 when I did that, and then I moved up to Christchurch, Littleton, mm-hmm. this little town, the port town of Christchurch, um, where they lived and were based, and got to move up there and be a part of a really rich music community of full-time musicians yeah. and people who wanted to do that same kind of thing, so I did like, that. So. Life is great at that point, right? Like, like I said, you're 18 years old, you're, you know, you kicked school again, so <laughs> you're like, all right, then second go of just kind of playing in a band and traveling around and... Yeah, I was very happy about it. And so for the next three or four years with them, I just toured full time around New Zealand and played in the bars and got to have a bit of education around what being a full time musician was like and touring in New Zealand and Australia. And we had a really we had a really great time. So many awesome memories from those times. Oh, right? yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Driving around or flying wherever you're going, driving around the country in a van or, you know, whatever it is. Like, yeah. it's, it builds a lot of great relationships. Oh, yeah. A band is, like, just such a such a unit that you just don't have in any other way, you know, the, the how close you get to those people and how much you learn to, you know, put aside of your own stuff yeah. in order to make it work. And but I did also get a sense of like how difficult that life is for musicians, you know, like you're you're playing in bars and stuff, you're drinking all the time, you're tired, you're burnt, you know, like you can't kind of do the normal life stuff that other people do. So I did yeah. get I did get pretty exhausted by that and that's why I started looking into like doing other kinds of work. Mm-hmm. Um so I would have an alternative cuz I think even at like 23, 24 I was like Whew. 
I don't know if I could do this forever. I'm not going to make it a 40 if I keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's when I started working in shoe repair shops and learning about this craft, I guess. Yeah. And just back to what you said earlier about kind of like, you know, working on a farm and just kind of that old time stuff and and just the music and everything Mm. as well. Did just shoes just seemed like the was it was did someone come to you was there an, was well, I mean you could have gone to a dress shop and you knew how to sew like why specifically shoes? Uh, was there a connection there to a shoe shop where someone just said hey I'll give you a job like it's I I just kind of liked shoes <laughs> I think like good leather boots and things like that and um and. It, my first attempt at shoemaking actually came when I was working on that farm and we were taking some animals in to, for meat and I asked them if I if they would save the hide for me, mm. which was a ridiculous uh, thing to do because I was like, well, maybe I'll try and tan this hide and see what I could make, it, make out of it, you know, and I didn't have any idea, anything to do with, like, no. tanning hides and... Um, so we saved this hide. Actually, I remember I was, I had driven down from Ontario to West Virginia to go to a big old time gathering down in southern West Virginia. And I got a call from the guy I worked with on the farm. He was like, Flora, it's the middle. It's like however many degrees, probably Celsius. It was 30, it's 38 degrees out here. And I have this giant cow hide that I don't know what to do with. What do you want to do? You know, and so... Um, he covered the whole thing in salt, and then when I got back, we strung it up and attempted yeah. to, like, kind of flesh it. And my idea was that I was going to make some kind of clog-like, some very primitive clog-like shoes. I had some wood that I'd cut out some sole bases on and stuff. And needless to say, we didn't, the tanning project didn't um, <sighs> kind of go as planned. And I think it's still, we put so much salt on it to try and yeah. preserve it in the meantime. I think they're still pulling pieces of it out of the compost at times because <laughs> we preserved it too well. <laughs> um, but I, I think that summer I ended up going down and buying some leather from some local um, Mennonite family who made collars and, and harnesses and things mm-hmm. for horses, and so they had some leather, and I yeah. band-sawed out these little clog soles and... Um, Made some leather tops, actually kind of like the Welsh clogs mm-hmm. that um, I was really into the, the Welsh dance clogs that had mm-hmm. leather tops. And yeah, so. Yeah. It's part of your culture. Part of my culture, <laughs> although I've never, I'm terrible at dancing. So <clears throat> unless I've had a far too many things to drink and I feel like I'm, you know, got a bit of Dutch courage and I think I can. Fantastic. Move like Michael Jackson, which yep. I cannot. <clears throat> I don't ever want to be reminded Maybe of it. Maybe not in a pair of clogs. Yeah, probably not in a pair of clogs, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, so you kind of just fall in love with then boot making and that I guess so. I just, making, yeah. Yeah, it was just a crazy idea that just, like, kept going and going. Yeah. And, and then when I went back to New Zealand, I was like, well, you know, I didn't have a formal education yeah. and and didn't have you know, wasn't really wanting to play music full time at that point. And so I just, I went to a shoe repair shop and asked if I could work there and had some experience stitching. So he had me replacing zips and boots and things like that. And, um, uh, and then when I was working in there, there was a woman who had heard about who was running shoemaking classes in Dunedin, the town that I was in. And she came in to get some stuff and, 
kind of asked me, like, oh, what are you doing working here? And, and I told her that I wanted to learn how to make shoes, but just hadn't got that far yet and offered to kind of help her out with her classes if she wanted to teach me shoemaking. So that's when I really got kicked off into it. So Yeah. So how do we get from there then to, you know, this wonderful city of Guthrie, Oklahoma? Well, uh, <clears throat> that was about 2016, I think. And I think I made my first pair of shoes in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I guess just because of the the music crowd, you know, the country music and being familiar with the cowboy boots, those, those mm-hmm. sort of style of boots and liking them when I was m- learning to make shoes, I was obviously showing an interest in the kind of um, those styles and the inlays and overlays that um, is prevalent in cowboy boot making. Mm-hmm. And so my teacher, Lou, she suggested that I look into the work of Lisa Sorrell and um, that she thought I would like her work. Mm-hmm. And I did. And she, one thing I noticed about her that I also liked was that she named all of her boots after classic country songs and traditional bluegrass songs and things. So there was that lovely musical connection that I, um, you know, felt kind of kindred to. So I, I guess I was just following Lisa's work for some time and Lisa puts up lots of Um, educational resources and things on the internet and there was nobody making cowboy boots in New Zealand and so curious about that process I was just following her YouTube channel and her social media and things and just became a real fan and and then I guess wanting to take things up a notch and really apprentice under someone I always like I always like the idea of the apprentice teacher mm-hmm. master relationship you know and because it's such a wonderful way to learn and kind of digging through books and the internet and things like that obviously an amazing resource but I just so value that kind of master apprentice connection and really wanted something like that and so I wrote to Lisa out of the blue and asked her what kind of teaching opportunities she had and um, if I could learn from her or or how I could go about learning the craft in general if she didn't do that kind of thing. And um, she, just to my surprise, wrote me back with a very kind of generous offer of what she could mm-hmm. um, provide. Basically, it was like that she didn't really have the time to full-time stand over somebody's shoulder, but if I knew enough to be able to work independently and work through her books, then she would be here to help and guide me in. Yeah. And so I basically was like, well, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal. And so I ran a little crowdfunding campaign and uh, got my got my stuff together to come and do that for as long as I could, really. And it was almost, it was five, five months that... Um, I ended up being here before and she invited me to come and stay in her home and yeah. uh, work in her workshop and just gave me all the tools and things necessary to be able to launch into it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and that's how I ended up here. Yeah. I mean, what are you thinking when you're, when you're flying, you know, halfway around the world to Oklahoma and like... I'm in this small town, and I, I suppose if you Google Guthrie, it's pretty magical, right? You read about the history, and you're like, this is a pretty epic place. I did get really excited about it pretty quickly, yeah. be, especially being a fiddle player, because when I, I, I was like, well, 
random town in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. Cool. Like my only reference for Oklahoma was Woody Guthrie, um, a vague idea of the West or something. But really, you know, for most people not from America or not from Oklahoma, people, I don't know, it gets like missed out a little bit. And um, so when I was looking into researching the town before coming here, I found out that Byron Berline, a very famous old fiddle player, um, lived here and had a shop here, an infamous shop that brought a lot of um, music and into the town. He ran, ran a big bluegrass festival, and I'd listened to Byron since my dad had, you know, forced me to learn the fiddle solo for Honky Tonk Woman when I was a teenager, you know, and and, and so I was pretty excited about that and um, I was like, yeah, all right, I'm going to go to Guthrie and see what it's all yeah. about, you know. What's it like when you get here? Like, what was the first kind of, like, you know, you meet, does Lisa pick you up from the airport? She did, yeah. I, I kind of had, you know, she was like, you're going to have a hard time getting around here without a car, you know, when... <laughs> When I first said, like, when I was coming in, I was like, I'll catch a bus or I'll catch the train or whatever there is. What, what's, what's the train line and stuff? And she's like, mm, I'm going to come and get you. Yeah. And so uh, she can't. And obviously, even more so in Oklahoma and the kind of prairie country, you need yeah. a vehicle to get around yeah. and stuff. And so a very lovely um, Guthrie local who's become a good friend of mine let me a uh, big diesel f-250 to get around in while i was here at first i was like walking everywhere and people were a bit kind of confused about you know why i was walking everywhere i guess around here if you nobody walks yeah if you walk you're either like pretty down and out or you know but people offered me rides a lot so that's great it was also good yeah i mean just like kind of how i was kind of similarly kind of you know, it's different for me because I, I was here to do school, right? I came for university, but just the, the similar thing is how nice the people are, right? And how oh, welcoming everybody is. Yes. Like, Okies know. are such warm-hearted people. I just, and I, I have this impression about Americans in general that they're pretty open and, and kind and, but I just, yeah, there's something very charming and lovely about Oklahomans. Just very earnest and genuine as well. And, um, it really does make you feel um, at home in yeah. some way or another. Did it, did it did it take you long to realize that like you definitely made the right decision coming out here and making you know for those five months and you know with Lisa and you know you come to the shop and you're working and you walk into that front door and you just like see all these shoe molds and you're like okay this is my place. <laughs> yeah, I I felt very honored to be here from from the get go and just knew that it was could feel what a special experience it was yeah. and um just yeah I, I've been over the moon about it all ever since and um I've just felt nothing but support of the town and you know the people that I've met here to to make it a wonderful experience you know like people they love their town and they want you to have a good time especially because you, you know you've expressed interest in it in the first place and so um, yeah, it's been it's been a real joy. I yeah. definitely haven't ever thought it was the wrong thing right. or anything. Did you then? I mean, naturally, you play. You know, music's obviously huge. And did you get to see the fiddle shop before it burnt down? I didn't. I I was planning on coming to Guthrie, and I heard about. I was already yeah planning it, and then the fiddle shop burned down in that time. I just it was so bizarre, and 
devastating, obviously. Even around the world, people heard about that and were devastated, you know. Um, But I arrived a couple of months after Byron had set up his new shop, which was just three doors down from the from the boot shop so i was um i was definitely pleased to yeah. did it take you a while to get kind of tapped into the scene of the music scene here as well um not or really you bring your violin with you yeah you i had my fiddle with yeah. me and and people are very welcoming to yeah. new musicians and it you know i think on the first day i was here i walked down to byron's and um started talking to him and they they had Saturday morning jams at the fiddle shop every morning so I would just go to those and met all kinds of people and then I met some more people who took me to some jams in Edmond and Oklahoma City and as soon as you start doing that stuff you're in you know you're in one of us one of us yeah yeah, if if you're a music community and there's somebody new in generally you they're pretty welcoming and and that was my experience so I mean it's I love it when we kind of go back and talk about all this stuff, right? Because, like, if you were to write all this stuff down or you were to just dream this thing up or think about this thing, like, where do I want to be? What's my future? And you tell yourself that story, you're like, there's no way, right? Like, I'm going to come to a small city in Oklahoma, (laughs) which has so much rich history that has, like, a world-class fiddle player (laughs) and shop here, as well as, like, one of, you know, a (laughs) world-famous, you know, famous Lisa as well. Like, Lisa's obviously well-known, you know, in the the community. And then, obviously, you've got Raymond down the road as well right exactly there's two infamous bootmakers in this town and the fiddle player and then and then while I was here I met somebody and so that was an anchor to come back here and I don't know I just yeah you gotta just roll with these things I guess you know I mean on one hand my family and like community that I grew up with is all on the other side of the world and they're that's all wonderful you know I wasn't really going out into the world trying to find something better than what I had but you know it um ah, you just roll with it well and that's that's the perfect reason like it's a beautiful example of like I I tell people a lot like you know I I think COVID kind of put people in their shell and forced people to say not forced people but kind of it was okay for people to say no to things right there was that <laughs> yeah. whole like no it's me time and I think that's gone too far right so I, did, <laughs> yeah. I, I know I kind of tell people like and the way that I kind of live my life very similarly is like the more you say yes to the more that you know what you don't want to do mm-hmm. right so just go say yes to a bunch of things find out because if you say no to something you know that 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 might connect you, not have connected you to someone who leads you to someone else who ends up leading you halfway around mm-hmm. the world. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of just like following, like I said, following your nose and just say yes to things and you can always go back, right? Yeah, it's certainly. It's the greatest thing ever. Yeah, I'm definitely a yes person. Mm-hmm. And like you say, sometimes it tips too far over mm-hmm. one side where all of a sudden I'm like, whoops, I've said yes to three things today yeah. that I can't do them all. But um, I just... It's only gotten me to weird and interesting, fun places, you know? And so, yeah, but I think as you you get older, certainly my 20s was just doing that constantly, you know? And But as you get older, you learn how much you learn that you only have a certain amount of time in the day and energy for a certain amount, and you just get to refine refine it. Yeah. Has family visited Guthrie yet? Um, None of my immediate family have visited, but I've had some visits from friends and yeah. things like that traveling through, which was really nice. And um, 
I think people really like coming to visit Oklahoma. That's a yeah. funny thing because they're like, they're like how I was when I first heard about yeah. it. Random town in the middle of nowhere that I would never would have traveled to probably otherwise. Yeah, um, yeah cool. It's real America. That's yeah. why, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of a couple of my high school buddies came over and they were like, you know, they did New York, they did Nashville, Orlando, all these places. And like, we like coming to Oklahoma because it is like real America. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, Disneyland or LA or whatever. It's, yeah. it's real people in real life and yeah. it's not a tourist destination. No, it is not. And that experience has been very good for me. Um, growing up in New Zealand and in my, the family that I did, you know, like we we tend to grow up in echo chambers and, and in the community of what we know, you know, so coming from there to here has been thrown me into a place um, and around people who've grown up completely differently from I, how I ever have. And, um, but also kind of not because you're all just on the same human experience train, you know, like, um, but it has been wonderful for me to be around people who have different ideas that from what I grew up with, who have different experiences, just living life in general. And, um, it's only made me like love people more, you know, and make me feel like just these ideas that we have about places that we just haven't you know, no context for, we're totally wrong about, you know, and we're just, you know, all people living in the world, basically, which is a very simple concept to come back to, but um, one that I think sometimes we need to get Mm -hmm. reminded of. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, It's, yeah, it's fascinating when you actually get out in the world and meet people instead Mm -hmm. of sitting in your bubble and Mm -hmm. just saying, oh, the world is this way, it's only this way. And some things I've been challenged on and have shifted my perspective on and other things, it's sort of having to explain where you're coming from. Like sometimes for the first time in my life, I've had to kind of actually articulate things that I believe, not just it's not just a given. And sometimes I go, hmm, that doesn't hold as much weight as I thought. Or and other times it strengthens it and yeah. you're able to share your like ideas about mm-hmm. life, I guess, with people and. It's, it's good. Yeah. So so training under Lisa then. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about that experience and then how that, you know, just kind of the plan is obviously to build your own business and have your own, you know, have your own clients. And I mean, that's generally the goal of most people who come into your profession, right? Mm-hmm. They learn, they apprentice, and then they go off and launch their brand. And that's the beautiful thing about being a maker is that, you know, it's artistry, isn't mm-hmm. it? So it's, it, you know, you develop your style and, and your kind of, specialty I guess and, and go forward so mm. tell me about kind of the the from a business standpoint the the learning under Lisa and then the planning to go forward well um I definitely when I first started in here you know I, I'd just done some shoemaking courses in New Zealand so I had never I had not done something as intensive as cowboy boots mm. which are like a very it's a very intensive process and um was far kind of more involved than I really give it credit for. But Lisa's, Lisa's got a, a DVD series and a book that she had to make out it start to finish, you know. So I, I worked through that very um, fastidiously and had a great deal of help from her getting me just absolutely roped into the whole thing. Um, 
And only being here for five months is really not enough time to learn a craft by any means, you know. And then I went back to New Zealand and I kind of, I had a year off doing it. So when I came back, I really had to find my bearings and things like that. And so that's when I, um, when I came back from New Zealand, this was end of 2020. So amidst COVID and things like that, and Lisa had another apprentice in the shop when I came back, so I ended up going over to Ray Dorworth's shop, which is another renowned bootmaker in Guthrie, who Lisa learned from, and as well as her other mentor, Jay Griffith, and both Ray and Lisa also used to work in Jay Griffith's shop in Guthrie. Jay's not alive anymore, but Ray still uh, makes cowboy boots on the other side of town. Um, and so I was waiting for some visa stuff to come through, didn't have, you know, was getting a bit restless. And so I asked Ray if he wanted some help. And so, and then I started working in Ray's shop for him, um, kind of just, he he started teaching me his way of doing it. And so then I started stitching boot tops and things for him. And, um, I ended up being in Ray's shop for a year and a half, almost two years and, gaining a ton of experience there, actually helping him work on his boots and being guided with him on how he would want it to be done. Um, And so that was really a big turning point for me, getting that kind of experience in the shop with him and having him as a mentor as well. And he's, he's been doing this for, you know, over 40 years. So he's starting to slow down in that process. So when people would come in asking him if he would make boots for them, he started to pass along some orders to me, mm-hmm. um, which is very generous of him and kind of gave me the gift of being able to start building up my own clientele mm-hmm. and um, I've kind of launched me into it from there. And Lisa's kind of been doing a bit the same because Lisa's in such a category that's... Um, you know, she's she's not making as many boots uh, these days on commission. She raised her prices quite a lot to kind of um, keep that in check. So if people are wanting to, you know, pay for a boot that's more of an apprentice type um, rate, then they've been passing orders on to me. So yeah. I'm very lucky to have two boot makers in this town who are kind of at a different level and wanting to do something a little different, right. but can pass um, things on to yeah. me. Um, so that's been kind of the basis of how being able to get started now. And mm-hmm. and now I'm, and because, you know, if you haven't made hardly any boots, then you don't have anything to show people of what you've done. Right. So there's no, and it's just now just kind of building organically from that. I, mm-hmm. Using the social media as a platform to put the work out there, just visually even, and then um, locally having you know, building a buzz around right. it and whatnot. Yeah. It's, I mean, just reminding people how special, like how special it is for you to be here in just like how, how fortunate it is for just to have two, like I said, world around bootmakers in this town. It's unbelievable. It's ridiculous, I mean, right? Yeah. It, and they're, and they're so supportive of the craft, you yeah. know, it's not just me personally that they're supportive of, but they're, they, they want to see the craft do well. And Honoring so, the craft so they're very it. supportive of, 
um, anyone who's showing interest in a genuine way to put the Lisa kind of jokes sometimes that she'll if people <laughs> call her up and say I want to get into cowboy boot making and she's like have you started it like have you gotten into it and they're like oh no I just kind of thought about it and she's like well don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> but 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 if if you're in it and you've showed some interest in her deep you know she'll she'll bend over backwards to help you out and it's just a it's just a hard thing to get into, especially in yeah. today's world where people don't want to pay, you know, um, fifteen hundred to four thousand dollars for a pair of boots because, of course, you can get something that's pretty all rightly made, you know, yeah. and will last a kind of a modern time frame of what you'd expect something to last mm-hmm. for, and people get sick of stuff and want throw it away anyway you know so this is a different kind of thing but I'm again also lucky that you know I couldn't do this in New Zealand because there isn't an established culture around having custom boots made here all the time people say things like oh my I have a pair of custom boots my grandfather had made or my Mm -hmm. father had made and so in Oklahoma Texas and things there's already a an established culture of custom boot making and And so the market reflect, you know, the prices reflect that. And I couldn't, couldn't do the same thing kind of back home in New Zealand. Yeah. I was, when I had people, yeah. When I had Ray on the podcast, he was talking about, well, Bo was also on the podcast Mm -hmm. too. And Bo was like helping, you know, kind of give some context to where he's at, where Ray's at and, you know, like the waiting list and the mm-hmm. amount, you know, and, and Ray's not, Ray was not the one to tell you, you know, look at me, who, who I am, like, look at all yeah. the people I've made boots for. And Bo was like, he's made boots for basically every governor and like the guy who owns Honda cars. <laughs> I was like, Oh, big deal. Oh, like, yeah. You know, how does that happen? Right. And, and, um, you know, it was funny. We talk, I said, like, how do you get, you know, your business, you, you know, and, like well it's mostly word of mouth and mm. and he goes to Bo goes yeah Raymond tell him about your your uh, your your social media stuff and he goes oh yeah that um that face tube that that face page <laughs> that I have and I clip it it's a wonderful clip it's brilliant uh, yeah Ray, Ray's a Ray's an old timer old you know yeah, yeah. We but love it's great to have that you know here right like you've you know you've got I mean yeah it's to well yeah to he's have. he's had a long career of mm-hmm. um of what he does yeah. totally outside of the modern way of doing business, you know, and Bo and I are both, Bo was the apprentice I was saying Lisa had in her shop when I came okay. back. So both Bo and I, Bo's a few years ahead of me, yeah. but both he and I learned from both oh, Le- yeah. Ray and Lisa as well. And, um, have come out of that same lineage of bootmakers. Awesome. Um, but yeah, he and I are obviously of a younger generation, so we're using the tools that a younger generation has. And I was a little resistant, being kind of a romantic of the old way of doing things, especially. But it's actually been a really positive experience having a social media account where you have this whole community of bootmakers and things who are on there. And it's been a really cool place for sharing ideas and and it's helped me with my confidence in my work getting feedback and um you know it takes a little bit of time to build up the confidence to put your work out there and things and but I got to a place where I was like well you know people who are more skilled than you know where you're at you know they can see where you're at so they're only expecting that much out of you so instead of you know, trying to only put my best work out there and things. I, I've put it out there in a way where I 
share where I'm at on uh-huh. the journey and, and people, it just, it's just, again, opened it up to be supported yeah. by, by people. And, you know, we, I get messages and we write back and forth about different ways that we do things. And so it's been a cool modern tool to use. Yeah. There's, there's a guy that I kind of listen to and follow and follow the social media, part of the social media world. And he, and he kind of says, you know, because people tend to overthink, right? Like what you said, you only put your best stuff out there and most people's social medias are just a highlight reel of the greatest things that they've mm-hmm. ever done. But in in kind of in, the, in relation to like being a maker and, and doing something, having a business, it was document, don't create. So just, you know, hey, today mm. this is where I'm at with this boot and you're just creating, you know, it's super simple and the mm. iPhone's the greatest thing in the world, right? Social media is awesome. And just picking up the phone or just setting the phone against the you know, stand and saying, all right, Today is this day, you know. I'm we're so whatever months into building this or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm at. And mm. Just and it's so simple to do that, right? Because I think we overthink social media. We think yeah. it's got to be it's got to be edited and got to have the right music. It's got to look great. And yeah. by just picking up and you know even just walking through this place, right? Mm-hmm. And people seeing in here, like I'm sure they'd like just to love to see it. And you're like, yeah, this is where do. I'm at with this boot, mm-hmm. right? And then at the end of the whole process, you could probably put like six or seven photos together and say, this is where I started. This is where I'm at now. And the yeah. clients walking out the door. Whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it's. Um, I think we overthink social media too much. Yeah, and people do, yeah, you're right. People do like to see the process. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense for craft as well because, I mean, I've definitely been guilty of getting into the, getting excited about the boot being finished, getting excited about like seeing, finishing up a project and feeling that gratification of that. But practicing, you know, it's not going to be enjoyable if the end goal is is all that you're focusing on, you know, it, and it, it makes the difference between it being work and it being a fun craft that you're engaged in. And, and so it's taught me to be enjoying every step of the way rather than trying to get to the finish line and mm-hmm. stuff. And so documenting your work as you go yeah. is the more, um, is, is, is a reasonable thing yeah. to do. And to that point, there is a fancy pair of blue and black boots on the shelf. <laughs> so that's, that's, there's a story behind those. Oh yeah, Shall I get, I'll grab them. Sure, why not? The, um, these are a pair of boots that I'm making for myself at the moment. They're not done. Yeah. I've just lasted them. Um, but I guess like when you're designing boots and things and trying to come up with the different colors for the tops, I always find that I just go out into the world and I can see those color combinations everywhere. It would be like a house that's painted and I'll be like, Oh, those would make an excellent color combo on boots. And so these ones were inspired. I've got it in a 1982 Ford Fairmont Futura, which is parked outside baby blue. It's got a cream vinyl top and um, you know, obviously the, silver chrome edging and things so that's what I thought that would make a really good pair of boots and um so these are the color and Lisa had some beautiful baby blue kangaroo that she sells so I was like that was the kind of starting point so I've made these with a baby blue top pearlized cream band and my my chrome and things and I guess the lizard um makes up the texture of the the tire trade (laughs) but um so they're kind of a tribute to my um beautiful but nightmare of an old car um so you finally and they also just look cool like as a good color combo you know you finally bought a car and didn't 
when driving the uh, F-250 diesel around town. No, yeah, I gave that back to my friend, and I finally got myself my first American car, and I got it off Craigslist and um, went down there to the south side of Oklahoma City. It looked all good, like one owner, low mileage and everything like that, but I'd, um, and my friend, actually the one who lent me the, the diesel truck, he took me down there, and we get about 20 minutes down the road from picking this thing up, and all of a sudden my check engine light comes on, and I can smell like something that's not quite right. I pull over and I'm sitting in, in the car and this lady screeches up next to me. It's like, get out of your car, it's on fire. I was like, what? <laughs> and so I dashed out of the car, of course, and like looked underneath it and there was like flames coming out of the tires. <laughs> and um, just something in the brake system had jammed up and clamped onto yeah. the tire and burst into flames. and. We managed to put the flame. I, I was sitting there, like, on the side of the interstate thinking that this car was about to absolutely just <laughs> explode. And um, <laughs> needless to say, it didn't. Got it back. And my lovely friends down here at Shorts Auto Service Center here in Guthrie have, yeah. have gotten it um, going for me. I did consider, like, um, putting some flames into the side of these boots, but I... <laughs> I thought it would make them a little less versatile, but yeah. I guess more of an art piece. But yeah, they're going to be cool if we get those going. That's awesome. What um, to, to the to the point of kind of like the boot making and and you know where you're at right now. What is you know for people listening, if someone doesn't want to go spend you know five thousand dollars on a pair of custom boots from uh-huh. you know a very renowned name and have to wait eight months, kind of where are you at in the process to try and you know if any, there's anyone listening that is wanting a pair of custom made boots, you know from you and and ha- tell me. This, you know, what's not the sales pitch, but tell me a little bit about kind of the process and the cost and how you do what you think. Uh, yeah, at the moment, the starting point is kind of is around two thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, and that's a custom boot, custom fit, custom design. Uh, so we take eight measurements from each foot and leg, and it'll get built up to your all your measurements, and we guarantee a a perfect fit, you know? Um, so if you get them on and they don't work, then we'll rebuild them. That's kind of the point, you know, because if you're having something built for you from scratch, you know, it's got to fit properly and you choose all of your leathers, um, for foot top. You can as many design details as you want. Really. A lot of the time people, first time customers don't know exact, you know, they're not as familiar with all the stylings of the boot. Um, and so they don't specify as much. And so they'll choose some colors and things like that. And we'll talk through what they want their boot to be. And quite often people have sentimental sort of things that they want to add in or just, um, personal custom things, or they've seen something else that they like. So we figure out what kind of boot they're going for, or also who they are and what they um, how they want to be wearing it and yeah. and all that kind of thing. So we we choose all the colors, the foot leather, the upper leather, whether they want a band, what kind of stitch pattern, um, what kind of toe shape, what kind of heel height, heel shape, um, tongue shape. Just You can get as specific as you want, or a lot of the time people leave it up to me and just kind of have me build something that um, yeah. w- would work for them. Um so inlays and overlays and things, they always get charged in addition to that price. And same with exotic leathers. Um, 
depending on the skin, we do, do alligator, ostrich. This is my first time using lizard, and I'm kind of doing this as an experiment to try out something yeah. new as well, because I, I tend to use that as an excuse to make a new pair of boots for myself. Of course. I'm going to try out using some lizard and see how that works and see if I want to add that in. And um, So, yeah, there's just... Um, these obviously have a few kind of inlays and things like that, so that's sort of extra work. But usually the base price is for cow leather, kangaroo tops, and uh, up to a four-row stitch pattern, but whatever colors and sizing and toe shape and heel and yeah. that you want, you know, all custom. It's funny. you know. I'm sure you have some people come in and they're like, I want this and this, and you're like, that's going to be the most ridiculous color combination you've probably ever thought of but if that's what you want then that's what i will build and that's what we're looking at i mean yeah i have i have right? some in here that are this this bright um kind of salmon coral color with the purple such a big um, shoe as well i wasn't i wasn't convinced on the color choices in the beginning but i kind of do just also right. i like making stuff that i wouldn't have yes. come up with necessarily because um you yeah. know other people it's it's nice to have other people's ideas yeah, it is. and I don't know yet what the boots would look like if I was choosing all the colors myself constantly, but um, I do I do like getting challenged in that way, you know. But um, yeah, sometimes people come up with some really ridiculous ideas, and you have to be like, well, that's either gonna cost a lot to pull that off, or you know, maybe we'll reroute it, and you don't actually want that much of a you know. Right. But I don't know. I, I've been doing. A bit of everything, really, you know, working cowboy boots, fancy kind of showy sort of boots. and um, But I'm really just trying to um, make a beautiful, traditional style cowboy boot that's made in the way that my teachers have taught me and that has been taught by them because um, at this point for me it's more craft than it is art. You know, I'm, I'm focusing on yeah just still learning the the traditional methods and yeah. and getting good at them as well and i feel like you kind of have to do that before really taking it mm -hmm. in your own direction and it's like that with the music and like the the fiddle tunes and mm -hmm. things like that you you want to learn the the basis of of this music and how it came to be and before you take it in your own direction. Because sometimes I think you can see when somebody's just doing something without much of a, um, a kind of a history behind yeah. it or whatever. Yeah, you've got to build that foundation, right? Mm. Like that educational foundation of, you know, you're putting in your hours mm -hmm. and 10,000 hours or whatever it is they call it, mm. you know, and that's the, that's the case for everything, right? Mm -hmm. Every profession, you know, especially if you're going to go on your own and have that backing behind you and that confidence and build mm -hmm. a business. Um, do you ever think about, like, taking this? You kind of said that there really isn't much of a culture in New Zealand for boot making. Mm. Would there ever be a time where you think, you know what, I would love to be that person to introduce that and move back to New Zealand? Or would you kind of happy staying here and moving, just kind of being in Oklahoma but using the States instead of maybe moving home back in, you know, in the future? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. right now... Um, there's so much for me to do here, so much to learn still from, you know, Lisa and Ray, and I feel pretty comfortable in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I really can't kind of plan too far ahead because things just change all the time, you know. I, I definitely don't feel like 
abandoning New Zealand forever and um, and I think it could be really cool to have a boot making culture there and things. Yeah. We just have to figure out a way yeah. which to make it work. You, but you mean, but you maybe have, I could build it here and then right. yeah, go over there and it would already have sort of established itself. But yeah. we'll see. It makes you the the Ray and Lisa, you know, Ray or Lisa of New Zealand, then, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't be a bad place to be. Yeah, it would be cool. I mean, there's there's a big agricultural yeah. culture there, and rural culture, and rodeoing, and all that sort of thing. So that could definitely be a thing. The thing is, like, uh, America is a wealthy country as well, you know, and so people have more money to spend. Yeah. New Zealand, you you get the sense that it's definitely like people do not have as much disposable income as yeah. they do in America, even, um, you know? Yeah. That's kind of, yeah, that's one of the main reasons I haven't moved back to Wales mm. was because of that exact thing. Like it's not, you know, I, I do miss the countryside and I do kind of miss playing golf back there. I don't miss the rain at all. Um, but the, the other big difference I tell people is that just the, the willingness to spend money out here is, is, f- 10x what it is back home mm. right so it's much easier to have a business here than it is back home and you're right disposable income is is you know is what drives businesses mm. and, and especially if you know what you're making is a luxury right you know absolutely you know, people out here they, they think about spending you know two thousand to whatever plus dollars on a custom pair of boots for a birthday for a mm-hmm. gift to themselves mm-hmm. whereas back home it's like two hundred dollars right sure yeah so that, that does make a lot of sense yeah um, it does yeah america really you do get the feeling that you could go as far as you wanted to with it in america you know it's that that whole thing of it being the land of opportunity and stuff it really kind of is. Yeah, is and it is really cool and exciting it's just I guess you have to think about what you want to do with your life. If if you want to make it about a career, or or if you would rather be with the people that you grew up with and your family, and and nourish that as like your main focus in life. Which, yeah. um, you know, I'm young enough that I don't know yet. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm happy practicing my craft and yeah. learning and just adventuring still. For as long as possible. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So for people listening, where can they find you? What's the social media? What's the website? Like how can they if they listen to this and they think, you know what, I deserve a new pair of boots, um, where can they come find you? Um I haven't got my website made up yet, but that'll be something that I'll work on over the next little while. My main thing where you can find the work is Instagram. And my thing is at Flora Knight Bespoke. Um, F-L-O-R-A-K-N-I-G-H-T bespoke um, and that I put up all my process and my picture, finished pictures and things up there yeah. and you can message me through there which is easy or um, uh, email I guess for people who don't use social media um, which is just my full name Flora Hastings Knight at gmail.com um, Hastings spelt like the town in England where my dad was born <laughs> and night like Knights of the Round Table. It's a pretty important town in the UK, Hastings. Yeah, big history. if you love history. Yep, that's exactly yeah. right. The Battle of Hastings. Yeah. So that's where I got that name. So yeah, email or uh, Instagram message. Um, and then if you're lucky, I'll can give yeah. my phone number out and give me a call and start on the process and things. But that's a good starting point, really. Super. People are curious about the work or drop in and see us in Guthrie. Yeah. But, um, Never a bad time to come up here. Yeah. Ever. 
So super. Well, thanks so much for sharing an hour and, and sharing some stories and, and giving people a lot more context into you, your process, your upbringing. It all makes sense, right? Like, you, you know, you, now when we look back at the last hour, it all makes sense of, you know, I play fiddle, I make yeah, boots. Like, it's bizarre and random, but, you know, everything kind of is. Yeah. Um, but for yeah. people listening, I'll put the links to your Instagram and the email link as well in the description. And if they just kind of think you know what I deserve a new pair of boots or just wanted to start a process or even if someone's listening that's just like how do I even begin to get into making and they want to pick your brain totally I'm happy to talk to anyone about any of that you know and I know that it is it is a luxury thing Mm -hmm. and like it doesn't doesn't mean that that needs to keep people out of it you know um but yeah Thanks. I appreciate you uh, having me on the podcast and I understand this podcast is about um you know, kind of celebrating what makes Oklahoma really cool. And I am super into that because, you know, coming from the other side of the world where I didn't know anything about this town, I've been very, like, wonderfully surprised and humbled by how cool and what a rich environment this is Mm -hmm. to be in. So um, I'm all for it. Yeah, it's uh, fun to have another accent on the podcast as well. It makes for great listening yeah, well, for our listeners. Yeah, weird. It kind of goes all over the place, yeah. but... Awesome. Well, Flora, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank and, you, And um, for people listening, we will catch you next episode. Cheers. Cheers. Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at oklahomahof. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el reno now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, diffieford.net, and then on Instagram at diffiefordlincoln. This episode is presented by the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw people have a rich history and a bright future. At the Choctaw Cultural Center, you can take part in a story 14,000 years in the making. Stroll through our immersive exhibits portraying Choctaw life from the moment our ancestors emerged from the Nani Weha in Mississippian homelands to the Trail of Tears, where we lost so many loved ones, and finally to the modern-day tribe making a positive impact on local communities throughout southeastern Oklahoma. Try your hand at our social dancing and stickball and learn more about our vibrant culture through demonstrations, workshops, and classes. The kids will have a blast in our Luxie Activity Center. The Choctaw Cultural Center is more than a museum. It's a living, breathing experience. Visit ChoctawCulturalCenter.com to plan your visit. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.